I love this time of year. Thanksgiving, um, I've literally been eating on Thanksgiving leftovers uh, since Thanksgiving. We're now out. The only thing we have left is turkey, which we turned into turkey salad yesterday, which is like, I mean, I like get excited. I'm a sandwich nerd, if you don't know this, um, and I love sandwiches. And, uh, and so anyways, I just love this time of year. We're getting close to Christmas. Um, but it's always interesting as you get older how your thoughts and approach to the holidays and this time of year change, right? When you're little, you're like, I want snow because I want school to be canceled. Like, I want the holidays because I want presents, right? Like, you have all of these different motivations. As you get older, things begin to change. And, um, and so you look forward to the holidays for different reasons. And, and then also your approach afterwards is different, right? Like, cause, cause after the holidays, it, you know, there's so much readjustment and, um, like it takes six months to, to realize and finally form the habit of writing 2017 instead of 2016. Um, and there's so many things that change. And then, you know, there's, there's like 10 pounds of Turkey that have to come off after the holidays. Um, and, uh, I, I don't know about you, but that's always a dreaded part, um, I, so full confession here, I can lose weight pretty quickly. I, I just, it's just, it happens. The reason I don't is not because I can't, uh, it's because I don't like to, cause I do not enjoy exercise at all. And I don't really enjoy exercise any time of the year, but at least during the summer, like you can go outside and run. Right. And this past summer and spring, I got outside, I started running, I started dropping weight really quick. Um, and, and then I got what, I used to believe it was only for old people. I got runner's knee. And, um, and then I realized it's not for old people. It can be for young, very people like myself. And so, um, so I got runner's knee. So then I had to quit running for a while. And, and then this time of year, it, I hate it for multiple reasons, but one, because of the weather and you're forced to be inside and there's nothing worse than running on a treadmill, like nothing worse. Like you, yeah, thank you. Uh, that's in the Bible somewhere. I think, um, like, I mean, you can put a treadmill in front of the TV and throw ESPN on and it makes it tolerable, but uh, running on treadmills brutal. And I think mostly just because you spend all your time running, going nowhere, like there's nothing to show for it. You didn't get to see anything. And, um, and so I literally like, that's on my mind right now. Like, wow, in a month, I'm gonna have to start getting on a treadmill and I already am like not looking forward to it. So, uh, I don't know about you, but I love this time of year, even though there's a few aspects of it that, uh, aren't the best, but maybe I should just be a little more careful about what I eat and then I won't have to get on the treadmill. At least that works in theory. So, uh, I want to welcome you this morning. My name is Adam Young. If I haven't introduced myself already, I'm the lead pastor here and excited that you're here uh, as we jump into week five of our series, I am, as we look at the seven I am statements that Jesus made in the gospel of John. And so we're in week five and we're going to jump in together to John chapter 14. So if you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to open them. Uh, maybe you want to pull out your phone or your tablet if that makes it easier to get to where you're going. We have Bibles. Uh, and then the verses that we're going to be looking at today uh, are going to be on the screen for you as well. Make it a little bit easier. Uh, so let me give you some context. Okay. John chapter 14, even though we're, we're just barely halfway through the book. I mean, we're, we're about two thirds of the way through the book. Um, we're within the last 24 hours of Jesus's life, starting in John chapter 14. Actually, if we jump back to chapter 13, we're in the last 14, I mean, the last 24 hours 
of the life of Jesus. So, so almost half of the Gospel of John deals exclusively with that final night uh, and, then, and then the immediate consequences of it. And so just let me give you some perspective on what is taking place so that you can, in your mind's eye a little bit, just imagine and see uh, what's going on, what the disciples are dealing with, uh, and, and what the situation looks like. So in, at the beginning of John chapter 13, uh, Jesus leads his disciples uh, into an upper room uh, where he is going to spend his final night and what we now celebrate and remember as his final meal or the last supper. Um, Jesus gathers together his disciples and they begin the meal. Now this isn't just any meal. This is uh, in many respects a Passover meal. A meal that has been celebrated for about 1500 years at the point Jesus is doing it. So 3500 years ago from now is when this this meal began. And it was meant to commemorate and to celebrate when the Israelites were uh, were led out of Egypt, out of slavery. And so uh, as they were slaves in Egypt and they cried out for God to, to save them, um, if you remember the story in Exodus, God sends ten plagues uh, onto the Egyptian people uh, because Pharaoh refused to let these people go. And it was the final tenth plague um, when when God sent a death angel and, and said that the firstborn of every household will die unless, um, unless you take a lamb and you slaughter it and you take the blood and you put it over the doorpost of your house. And then and he gave him instructions of what to do with this lamb. You're going to have a feast and you're going to celebrate and pray. And then that night when you go to bed, when the death angel comes, any house who has the blood of the lamb on it, he will pass over. And so for 1,500 years, the Jewish people have celebrated Passover feast where they take a lamb and they slaughter it uh, and then they cook it and eat it. And it's a celebration meal to remember when God passed over, when his judgment passed over them and they were led into freedom by the blood of the lamb. So that's the context. This is a meal that has been celebrated virtually the same way every year for 1,500 years. I mean, just think about if a meal, a, a tradition had started 1,500 years ago from now uh, that we were still celebrating today to the point where every moment, step by step of the dinner was completely planned and not open for change or negotiation. All right, you and I, we, I'm guessing all of us celebrated Thanksgiving, right? Most of us had turkey if, you know, we need to be praying for you because there's still something wrong with your heart. Maybe your family fo- solely focused on ham. But for those of us who are godly, there was turkey there. Okay? There was ham in my house too. But that was to appease a few other individuals in my family. But, uh, but, but you have your own traditions, right? Some of you love cranberry sauce. I don't know why, but you do. All right? Some of you, you've got your own traditions like, oh, this is what we like to eat. This is what we, we would never touch this. And, you know, half the family's allergic to this, but the other half loves this. And so you have your traditions, right? And, and then as you get married, you grow older. Sometimes those traditions change, but there's a little bit of tradition. But it's still open for flexibility, right? Whether you eat at noon or five o'clock, that's, that's open. Whether there's ham or turkey or both or neither, that's open for debate. Um, some of the nuances of who you're celebrating with and what you do when you get together. Are you watching football while you eat or after you eat or never? 
Those are all open to negotiation. But for the Passover meal, there was no negotiation. They did the same meal the same way every single year for 1,500 years. So Jesus begins this meal with his disciples. And it says while they were eating, there's a certain period of time during the Passover meal. Uh, The meal itself takes a long time, several hours, because it's so structured. But there's a a block of time in there where you just eat. Um, And it says that in John chapter 13, Jesus, while they were just eating the meal, gets up. He takes off his outer garments. He takes the towel and a bowl of water. And as all the disciples are lounging around the table, he goes step by step, person by person, begins washing their feet. Um, Which is both a disgusting job uh, in a a day and age where there's no indoor plumbing, where there's no plumbing that feeds and takes care of the entire city, where the only method of travel is wild animals down these dirt paths. Um, There's no lower form of servanthood than to wash someone's feet. Um, but as a good host, you would provide to your guests a servant who would wash their feet. No one had washed anyone's feet that night, and Jesus gets down and begins washing the disciples' feet. Now imagine what that would be like for, for the disciples. Now you have given up everything in your life. right? You've walked away from your job, from your home, from your house. You have given, away, given up everything to follow Jesus. Because you believe he's the answer to your prayers. That he has come to fulfill a promise that had been around for more than 2,000 years at that point. A promise that was given to a man named Abraham long before the Israelites ever found themselves in Egypt. This man that you bet your whole life on, who you believe is the answer to prayers, come to do something amazing that will change the face of the world. He begins wiping and washing your feet. Now, how uncomfortable are you at that moment? Imagine if I brought you on stage right now and I said, I'm going to wash your feet in front of everyone. (laughs) Some of you are like, sweet, that'd be great. How uncomfortable, not only that it's being done to you, which seems odd, but that there's plenty of people to sit and watch. One by one, Jesus is wiping the disciples' feet. When he gets to Peter, Peter says, "Uh Uh-uh, I don't think so, Jesus. How could I let you wash my feet? Jesus says, if if you won't allow me to wash your feet, then then I have no part of you. You have no part of me. If you're not willing to allow me to serve you, then you're missing the point of what I'm here to do so peter in typical peter fashion says well not just my feet lord wash me all over and jesus somewhat in sarcasm says i think your feet will be enough and then he gets up from the table and as they continue with the meal jesus says one of you are going to betray me tonight now, if the, if the mood in the room hadn't been uncomfortable enough, Jesus now drops that bomb. So obviously the disciples are going, who, who in the world is about to do that? Who in the world, after just having their feet washed by Jesus, the man we've given up everything to follow, who would betray you now? 
Well, Jesus says it's going to be who I share this bread with. And he just so happens to reach over to Judas and looks Judas in the eyes. And John tells us, John, a man who was there himself, who witnessed the encounter, says that Jesus looked Judas in the eyes and said, what you're going to do, do quickly. At that moment, Judas got up and left the room. And then Jesus says, what I've come to accomplish has been done. God is being glorified in me. I am being glorified in the Father. All of his plans are coming to completion. But where I go, you are not able to go. Peter says, uh, what do you mean where you go, I'm, we're not able to go? Jesus, and he says, where are you going? Jesus says, where I go now, you can't come, but you'll follow later. Peter, in typical Peter fashion, says, Jesus, I'll follow you anywhere, even to my own death. And Jesus says, Peter, before the sun rises, you'll deny me three times tonight. So that's the mood of the room. There's 12 of them now. There was Jesus plus 12, but now one has just left the room. Jesus continues on with the meal, taking the bread, taking the cup that we celebrate every week, saying this used to represent God's freedom for his people, this bread. It used to represent a lamb that was sacrificed so that his judgment would pass over you. I tell you, this bread now represents my body, which is broken for you. Because just as John the Baptist, the first, the first time he sees Jesus, do you remember what he says about him? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus says, I'm now that Lamb. It'll be through my blood that judgment now passes over you. He takes this cup and he says, this now represents my blood. That's poured out for you. This is all happening in the same moment in the same room. All of these stories that we've read about and talked about, all of it happens within, within maybe a, an hour or two hours in this one room. Now imagine what's going through the thoughts and the minds and the feelings of these disciples. Jesus, a man who should be honored above all, has just lowered himself lower than all to wash our feet. We've just discovered that whatever this means, Judas is about to betray Jesus. Now, the disciples still don't know what's coming. They don't know what's happening in a matter of hours. It will be this very night that Jesus is arrested. That he'll be drugged from trial to trial to trial throughout the city of Jerusalem where he'll be beaten and flogged in preparation for his execution the next morning. They have no idea what's coming, but what they do know is that Judas has just stormed out of the room because Jesus exposed whatever it was that he was about to do. Now Jesus is telling us he's leaving. He's going somewhere because whatever mission he came to accomplish has now been completed and that we can't follow. I've just given up everything. I've given up my whole life to follow this man. Now he's telling me he's leaving and I can't go with him. And now he's talking like our whole worlds are about to be shattered 
So that's the context. We pick up chapter 14, starting in verse 1. Jesus says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many rooms. If it were not so, I would, would I have told you that I go prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will, and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also, and you know the way to where I am going. Verse 5, Thomas, who, poor Thomas, every time he says something in the Bible, it's usually not good. One of his disciples, Thomas, said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus, Jesus says, I'm leaving. I'm going to come back. But because you know where I'm going, you know the way. And Thomas is like, Mm-mm, I don't think so. Jesus, I, if we don't know where you're going, how in the world would we know the way to get there? And this is Jesus' response. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Jesus said to them, I am the way and the truth and the life. Why would Jesus respond that way? In the midst of this whole conversation they've been having all night, in light of all that's taken place, as the disciples are trying to wrap their minds around, what is it that Jesus is trying to say? Where is it that he's trying to take us? What is it that he's trying to do? And Jesus replies to this confusion that they're dealing with by saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the way. So the big question is the way to where? Jesus is the way where? Where is it that he's leading us? Where is it that I'm trying to go? And maybe we could ask that question personally of you this morning. Where are you headed? Where are you headed? Now, some of you may try to answer that question by, this is who I'm trying to be. This is what I want to become. This is what I want people to say about me. What if we did this? What if we didn't allow you to answer that question? We allowed other people to answer it for you based on what they see. Somebody comes in and they look at your life and they made an evaluation based on what they see. Where would they say you're going? In our small group, that our e-group that meets at my house, we've been going through this study called Simplify. And we've been talking about really, it, to boil it down, putting, putting priorities in our life. Priorities with our schedules. Priorities with our finances. Priority in our relationships. If somebody came in and looked at your calendar, where would they say you're headed? If somebody came in and looked at your finances, where would they say you're headed? If somebody came in and looked at your relationships and, and those who you give the most time and attention to, 
the, the relationships you invest the most in, where would they say you're headed? I mean, it's one thing for you to answer yourself. I mean, because everyone in here is going to give the correct answer or something really good. But what would they say about you? Where are you headed? C.S. Lewis, I don't know if you know who he is um, or have read any of his works. If you haven't, um, you should. Um, Probably one of the greatest Christian thinkers of the last, oh, I don't know, (coughs) excuse me, 100, 200 years. Um, A a man who um, was was saved later in life. Uh, A man who thinks and writes in ways that uh, I only wish I could. And one of his books, Mere Christianity, probably his most famous, he says this, If I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. So many times we spend so much of our life and energy pursuing things that once we get what we we're looking for, find ourselves just as empty as before we started. C.S., a man who dealt with this own struggle in his life, said, maybe if, if this world can't satisfy what it is that I'm looking for, maybe it's because I was made to be satisfied by something else. Jesus says that If I go, then you know I'm going to come back. I go to prepare a place for you. What he's not talking about is going back to remodel heaven. Heaven doesn't need a fix. It's not a fixer-upper. It doesn't need work. What does he mean about preparing this place? There's this great chasm between you and I. Between... You, I, and heaven. That Jesus intends to close. That Jesus intends to bridge. The Bible teaches that um, the, that heaven was, was prepared for those who would believe before the foundations of the world were set. God's not surprised who's going to show up. and Jesus didn't need to prepare it for unexpected guests. He's going to prepare the way. Jesus says, I am the way. Then he says, I am the truth. Colossians 1 says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Jesus is God's self-revelation of himself and his character and his purposes and plans for you. Jesus is the standard of righteousness that all of us are compared to. One of the things, one of the games that we like to play is to compare ourselves to other people. Like, well, yeah, I'll go to heaven because I'm better than that jerk who I live next door to. Or certainly I deserve God's good blessings because I'm better than this person next to me in the cubicle or... um, yeah, I'm better than this family member. And we love to compare ourselves to somebody else. As though our great righteousness is elevated because of somebody else's great unrighteousness. 
Jesus is the truth, meaning he's the standard with which we're compared. Jesus is what all of us get compared to in the end. And that's why the Bible teaches us that no one is righteous. No one is good enough. None of us are going to be able to earn or deserve our way into heaven. Yeah, you may be better than a lot of people around you. But when you get compared to the real truth standard, to Jesus, all of us pale in comparison. Isaiah says it this way, that our righteousness is like filthy rags to God. That our efforts to prove ourselves worthy and good enough fall so far short of everything that we need. Jesus says, I'm the way, I'm the truth, and I'm the life. So think about the context of what, of, in which Jesus is saying these things. He, talking about the, what's to come. I'm about to leave. You can't come with me now. I'm going to prepare something for you. And one day I'll come back again. One day I'll finish what I've started. What do we do in the gap between? There's one thing for Jesus to be the answer for how we get to heaven. But what about the in-between time? And it's within that context Jesus says, and I am the life. Paul, who wrote two-thirds of your New Testament, said it this way in Galatians 2.20, For I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Jesus becomes our source of life. And when Jesus becomes your source of life, you no longer have to manufacture it on your own. Does that make sense? Does that resonate with you when we talk about manufacturing life? When we feel this constant pressure to be good enough to measure up, to be everything that we desperately desire and need. I mean, last week we talked about how some of this plays out in our lives. That because of social media, we're the most connected generation that's ever lived. And sociologists now talk about how we're the loneliest generation that's ever lived. This constant pressure to feel like you have to manufacture happiness and joy and fulfillment in your life is exhausting. And in the end, we're still left unsatisfied. Jesus says, not only am I the way to heaven, but I'm the truth. I'm the standard. I'm what you and everyone else in this world will be compared to. But the good news is, Jesus says, I'm also the life. That I bring that fulfillment that you're looking for. I think all of us in our lives are looking for something concrete. Looking for something firm. Looking for something that we can build our lives on. Because Everything else just constantly seems to fade away. 
I pursue, I pursue, I pursue, I pursue, I get, and I'm still left unsatisfied. I search and I search and I search and I search and I search, and every standard I find leaves me wanting more. I work and I work and I work and I work. No matter how hard I work, I always feel empty that there's got to be something more. And Jesus, speaking to a group of men who are trying to wrap their minds around around what's just about to happen, that everything they know is about to come shattering down, that Jesus is going to replace all of it. And Jesus' response, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I'm here and am going to be everything that you're searching for. And he started verse chapter 14 with this. Do not be troubled. I think we've all experienced that in life. Because in the end, without Jesus, it's like running on a treadmill. You work and you work and you work and you work. And you don't end up going anywhere. Jesus says, I provided a new way, a new path, that through me, you're going to get to where it is that you really want to go. Will you pray with me? Lord, thank you for this moment. And God, I just pray that you would uh, (coughs) be very near to us. we could take a moment just to be honest and serious and reflect about our own lives. And that you would speak to us here and now. So I'm going to ask you to keep your eyes closed for a minute. And as we do each week, we want to provide you an opportunity to think and reflect. So there's a number of positions that you could be in this morning as you hear the words of Jesus and the way that they may be applying to you in this moment. And every week we do our best to leave that door open so that Jesus can speak. Because I don't know what's going on in your heart Even though I know a lot of you, I don't always know what's going on in your lives. Jesus does, and we want to give him that freedom and that room to speak to you now. Some of you may feel like your life is in chaos. That there's not a lot of stability. That you keep working, keep fighting, keep trying feels like you're on a treadmill. No matter how hard you work, you don't seem to be going anywhere. The struggles you had last year, the same struggles you have this year. 
The unsatisfaction you had five years ago is the unsatisfaction you feel now. And Jesus' invitation to you is, he would say the same thing to you that he said to these disciples. Don't be troubled, because I am the way. I am the truth. And I am the life. Some of you in here may say, I already believe that. I I believe that to be true, but it doesn't change the fact that I still feel like I'm working and fighting and not going anywhere. There are challenges in the life of being a follower of Christ. These disciples were about to experience more challenges than they could ever imagine the next 24 hours from that moment that we read about today. Peter, who is really like the spokesman for for the disciples, is going to publicly deny Jesus three times out of fear that maybe what's what's happening to Jesus might happen to him if they find out he's a follower. Even before that happens in the garden when Jesus is going to get arrested, Bible tells us that all the disciples ran and fled. After Jesus is crucified and buried, the disciples gather together and start asking questions like, what now? So he's gone. Now what? Now what do we do? Should we just go back to our day jobs? Sometimes even for those who believe and embrace Jesus, there are challenging moments and times. And sometimes we just need that rallying cry to come back and embrace and follow Jesus and trust Him at His Word. Maybe that's you this morning. It's not a matter of believing in Jesus for the first time. You've already done that, but Today's just one of those rallying calls, those wake-up moments. Even though you knew in your head the right answer, you've kind of fallen into that trap of trying to pursue happiness on your own. And just This is a moment for you to, to re-anchor yourself. thank you for who you are we just ask that you continue to move and to speak we want to be a people that represent to those watching that you are the way that you are the truth that you are the life you help each of us to embody that each of us to embrace it the crazy, hectic world of the holidays, it's pretty easy for us to forget, to get distracted, to get overwhelmed. Today, we just ask that you would be our anchor, you would be our rock, that you would be all we need. Lord, continue to move and to speak in this place, in this moment.